Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. I'm Stephen James and this is the Story Blender, the place where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. And today's guest, Alison Brennan, is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of more than two dozen thrillers and numerous short stories. Before becoming a novelist, she worked as a legislative consultant in California for more than a decade. Reviewers have called her a master of suspense, and RT Book Reviews says that her books are mesmerizing and complex. Currently, she's focusing on the series with Lucy Kincaid and Sean Rogan, the thrillers, and also Maxine Revere with a series of cold case mysteries. So, Allison, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Our paths have crossed a few times at conferences, but I don't think we've really had much of a chance to sit down and talk, so I was really excited that you agreed to come on and uh, and let me pick your brain a little bit about how you approach the art of storytelling. Yeah, I remember meeting you at, uh, I think, Thriller Fest um, a couple of years ago, and uh, just briefly, and I think I remember your book entered in the best first novel category way back when. And I was a judge, and I just remember really liking it. It was a great, oh. was a great book. Thank you very I much. Remember That's the great. title? Okay. It might have been the pawn. It was one the of the pawn. Yeah, the pawn was. Is that it? Uh, yeah, that I'm was not that uh, bad. <laughs> that was very good. Wow, nice, nice. I should mention to our viewers that, um, or not our viewers. Yeah, if you're viewing this, you're probably <laughs> pretty bored because you're probably staring at your computer screen. But to our listeners, that uh, there is a tornado watch outside. So if you hear some strange sirens and hear me running for cover, at least you'll know that has nothing to do with our interview or or with how excited I am to talk to Allison today. So, Allison, your stories often deal with criminal investigations and uh, and with the FBI. And one of the things I was wondering is, have you felt that television crime shows have affected this genre or what people expect out of this genre over the years? Um, I know that I've sort of watched as both shows have become grittier, and also I think novels have had more realism and more grit to them. I just was curious if you've seen sort of the same kind of um, pattern. Well, I think that no matter what, um, all novels over time are going to change to kind of reflect uh, the present day. I mean, unless you're writing historicals, <laughs> right. you're, you're still going to be um, reflecting kind of a contemporary tone. And so as... Um, basically, as more people know more about crime, we have more Internet, we see more pictures, we see, um, you know, even like from the military, from overseas, we're seeing some atrocities being committed, and we're, all of that kind of goes into our um, television viewing. It all goes into our book reading, and so it's just kind of a natural connection between all the different mediums, what's happening in the present day, what's going on television, what's on the movie screen, and what's going into books. So as the world is kind of, I wouldn't say the world is grittier, it's just as we see more of it, and so therefore we're showing more of it in our art. Yeah, I think it's actually, in a sense, it's good. You know, somebody asked me one time if I thought my books desensitized people to evil, and truthfully, I said, I think they sensitize people to evil because I don't gloss over it, and I don't so don't mute it, and I don't glamorize it. I try to just show it for what it really is. You know, if someone dies, I let people grieve, and 
And uh, and so even though you and I both deal with, you know, death and, and some dark topics in our books, I think that by being more honest with it, it actually does desensitize people instead of just make it another, you know, another body in the street kind of story. Well, and I think a lot of times when you're writing a crime thriller and you're dealing with um, a topic such as, you know, you have a, a murder or you have sex trafficking or you have any sort of violence whatsoever – the hallmark of, I think, a really great storyteller is to be able to show how that impacts your characters. So if you can show not just anybody can show a violent scene. You know, you can, it's like in the old classic horror movies, you can show violence, but the key is to show either the suspense from the victim's point of view or from, um, you know, the investigator's point of view, or you show the grief from what happened. You know, this is now a dead body. You don't just show the blood. You're showing what is happening to the people around who are either investigating or who this was one of their loved ones. That is actually what's going to give the reader the emotional connection to the story. The blood and gore, that's that's nothing. Anybody can do that. It's not even that exciting anymore, but it's the emotional. It's like the same thing with the psychological thriller. If you can show that tension, you can scare somebody witless without ever having to show a drop of blood. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, and I like how you put it with showing the impact, you know, on on the characters or the investigator, the grief. Um, you know, so many great stories, and even if they're high concept or fueled with a adrenaline, you know, laced plot, are it's it's the characters that we remember. It's the characters people come back for. No, oh, I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Tony Mickey Cosby, you might have met her. She goes to Thriller Fest sometimes. She once says, um, story equals characters plus conflict. And you can't have a story if you don't have characters in conflict, but you have to have the characters. It all goes back to the people. I'm one of these people that you have to, I have to like one of the characters in the book. I have to care what happens. Otherwise, I don't enjoy the book. And I know there's sometimes there's a trend of books where nobody is likable. And I kind of got over this real quick because I need to be invested in something. I need to have justice served. I need to have a resolution at the end of the book. And it can be bittersweet. Bad things can happen. But I have to care about at least one of the characters. I'm Um, the same way, yeah. Yeah, when people give me these books or they'll recommend a television show and there's nobody there that I want to spend time with. I mean, I don't like them. I'm not you know, attracted to them in any way. I'm not intrigued by them. Um and I don't I don't understand, yeah, if it's people trying to be in vogue or something with with doing that, I, I, it doesn't 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 click for me either. Yeah, so I, I just really think that when you're dealing with characters, if you can um give the reader one person and I do write some despicable people and I do have you know different levels of people, you know, some people that you know, they're not bad people, but they make bad decisions. And I also have, you know, my heroes, but they're still flawed. And I have some really bad villains. But at the same time, hopefully by the end of the book, the readers are going to be invested enough in the story that they're going to want justice served and they're going to care what happens to my characters. They're going to want to either save, um, you know, if there's somebody in jeopardy, they want that person saved. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, and that brings to mind something I was going to I was going to ask you about, and that is you've done a number of different series, um, and I've noticed that some people when they do a series, basically every book ends up a cookie cutter of the previous one. 
it's the same you know main character and then you have a different killer you have a different love interest maybe a different city and otherwise it's pretty much the same story um that's doesn't that doesn't attract me too much and i'm wondering how you uh kind of walk the balance of giving readers what they've come for but also making each story fresh and new i think well the first thing is i think a writer needs to love what they're doing i've actually had this conversation with people about how they think oh if you're just writing say um a crime thriller it's basically the same story over and over and i disagree i don't i don't necessarily think it is you have to love what you do, and I love writing thrillers. I just love it. But at the same time, if you bounce around and like, okay, I'm going to write a crime thriller, now I'm going to write an epic high fantasy, and now I'm going to write, oh, I want to write a middle grade detective story. You know, right, you're right. Not satisfying your core readership. And my readers read me for the suspense, so I keep that in foremost in my mind. I can do a lot with that. The first 12 books I wrote were all romantic suspense written in trilogy form. So basically it was three stories kind of set in the same world. But the way I kind of kept them different is character. Characters have to be distinctly different. You can't just have your heroine always being a disgruntled FBI agent or being a, um, you know, a detective seeking justice. You have to give them some do something different with the characters because really that changes the entire dynamic of the story. And the other thing is my villains, I really, really hope, and I've done a lot of work to try to make them as three-dimensional as possible. I don't want them to just be purely evil. I want them to be, obviously they've made bad choices, but I live by the motto, the villain is the hero of his own journey. And if yeah, I nice. make it where the reader understands how the villain got to be the person he is today then that's telling a whole other story within the story. Um, so when I did my uh, my trilogies, I tried to come up with unique characters. So yes, my first three books were about a serial killer. My next three books were about um, cybercrime. Uh, so they, I kind of kept the same theme within each trilogy. Right. But what I was really exploring was um, how the heroes, heroines, and the villains all worked in that in that dynamic. So, for example, my fourth book was the first one that dealt with online media. I had read a real story about a girl in college who was killed by her much older boyfriend. She had kept an anonymous sex diary online. And my, this is when I have five kids, so I have right. one that was in high school at the time, and I'm like thinking, oh my gosh, this is like so much information. I'm like wondering, you know, how could this possibly happen? But we all know nothing's really anonymous online. So I kind of used that theme of somebody who kept this anonymous blog, but, of course, the killer found out who it was. Yeah. Um, so I try to take these different elements, contemporary elements, and then sort of make them my own in a way. No, I think, I think, um, I think that makes total sense. And also I like how it, it's not locked into one thing, like everything has to be a serial killer, but instead – you adapt and change and focus each series on sort of a thematic material that, you know, that holds them together. Uh, when you were talking about, you know, cyber crimes, in one of my books, Every Crooked Path, it deals with, you know, cyber crimes of people targeting children. And I had people writing to me like, how could you write a book like this? And I was like, well, how could I not? This is our world, you know. This is what is actually happening. I'm not going to glamorize it, but 
it's from yeah, it is troubling of what people do targeting others, especially children. And, well, and I, I agree. Yeah. I don't. Well, my my general rule. This is just for me personally as a writer. Um, I have dealt with child murder before in my books, but I never kill a child on the page. It's always yeah. something that has happened in the past, or it's a yeah. crime that is about you know that has already occurred, and my detective is going to solve it because. I, you know, violence. You know, I have five kids. It's one of those things that's very, um, I'm very sensitive to, and I don't want to show it. But I still want to show that it happens. So that's why it, I only show the impact on my characters. Yeah, uh, that's good. I had a story it was a delicate about, balance, you know, writing that without doing anything graphic or having any children, you know. Well, it is because yeah. you, you re- recognize that children are hurt all the time, and it, it's it's truly sad. But we can't ignore it and so what i did for example one of my books um they had found a dead body uh, it was of a, of a girl who was about 11 but instead of showing the autopsy and learning how she died my um uh, analyst she actually was she was pretending to be an fbi agent she wasn't one um she, she had been but she'd had to leave um she walked out of the autopsy so i didn't right. even have to show it basically she walked out and she's feeling like how could she not do this She's a professional. She should have been able to do it, and here she is having this thing. So I didn't even have to show the autopsy. I just had to have the detective come out and say what the result was. Yeah, and that's powerful enough, yeah. And I think that, in in a way, it was even more emotional because I didn't show it. Oh, yeah. I I think so. And even what you said earlier about building suspense without necessarily a drop of blood, um... I believe that some of those scariest scenes, there is no violence, actually. It's the premise that either um, it's the danger that someone's in or the impending peril that's that's coming, and you know it's coming, and that builds the suspense. And, you know, if you look at what people categorize as the scariest movies of all time, you don't see slasher movies listed in the top ten or whatever. You see movies like Silence of the Lambs or Seven or or others where there's almost no violence on screen and because it's uh it's this impending feeling of there's there's danger coming and and it it yeah, isn't Alfred about yeah. amazingly well i mean he has that high tension in his um in his movies that are just like you just know something's going to happen and you're just waiting for it um and i and i think you can do it that way and i i mean i enjoy well, enjoy is the bad word I have have had really good violent scenes in my books, but it has to fit the story. It has to fit the tone of the book, the characters. Um, Like the opening of Make Them Pay, I have my character, and he's a mercenary. He's mostly a good character, but he does some bad things. He's basically torturing a guy for information. Now, this guy we know is totally bad, but the scene itself is, is a little bit gruesome because... It kind of has to be because I want to show that basically my character Kane will do anything to save an innocent life, even if it means he's going to have to cross some lines. One of the things, as you were mentioning, uh, you know, the different types of stories that you've done, and also tapping into current trends, is I was wondering what's one of the strangest or most memorable things you've encountered while researching a novel. I know research for me is something I never really anticipated I would enjoy that much, but I've met the most amazing and interesting people over the years. 
I love research, and it's one of those uh, things that I I call I call my field trips because writing is such a solitary profession. Um, yeah. I write at home all day long. The only time I ever go out is when I'm taking my kids to sports because I have I still have three kids at home. Two are in college, but three are at home, and so that's the only time I ever get out. So when I get to do something fun like a field trip, like to the morgue. Um, I think <laughs> field trip to the morgue. I love it. Yeah, I've been to the morgue twice in Sacramento County, and it's always been interesting. Um, I did the the single best thing I did for myself as a writer was I hounded the local FBI office to talk to me. Finally, he said, "Okay, you have to get cleared by national headquarters, and then I can talk to you." So I had to go through this whole background check thing. Uh, through the national FBI office. Right. um, Once they cleared me, then the media information officer was allowed to talk to me. And he's also an agent, so he knows everything. He's the only one allowed to speak for the Sacramento FBI. Uh So he invited me, he answered all my questions, and then he invited me to participate in the FBI Citizens Academy, which is a group, it's usually about 25 to 35 people every, they do it twice a year, and you have once a week you go and meet, and you get to talk to FBI agents, they brought in the assistant U.S. attorney to talk to us once, we get experts in every field, we get to go to the gun range, we get to meet all the SWAT guys, it is just so much fun. (laughs) It was was an eight-week program, and we went one night a week, and it culminated like in a party. And now I'm an alumni, so I get invited to briefings. They do them roughly three, maybe four times a year. They'll do a briefing, like one that I had gone to was on the Unabomber. It was the the main agent who investigated the Unabomber. Well, that all happened when I worked in the legislature, um, where he was targeting lobbyists in Sacramento. Oh, wow, yeah. So I was really well-versed in what had happened because it happened in my own backyard. But listening to how they investigated it, how they um, found him, the fact that they ultimately only got one warrant in the entire investigation, one warrant to execute when they found him in Montana. So that kind of stuff is all really interesting. Um, We did... Through the Citizens Academy, I got to go to Quantico, and then because I met the public information officer at Quantico, I contacted them again because I was going to be on the East Coast saying, could I get a private tour because I have some very specific questions because my character, Lucy, her series starts before she's an FBI agent, and then it goes right. through her becoming an FBI agent, and now she is a rookie. Um because there wasn't a lot of books out there about new agents. They were all seasoned detectives. They all, you know, very experienced. I want something new. You know, so she was a new agent. I set a murder murder at Quantico based partly on what I learned when I was there. Because I was right. trying to figure, well, how can you kill somebody at Quantico? Because obviously you have a lot of cops around. Right. So I realized they were doing a bunch of construction. So I could have, and not everything is covered by video surveillance because there was so much construction going on. So I got to knock over a scaffolding and everything. It was fun. And so I get to do these fun field trips. I've been to the morgue. I've seen an autopsy. I've gone to the gun range. I've tried several different kinds of weapons. Um, you know, it's it's all sort of grist for the mill. You just keep uh, learning whatever you can learn. And at some point, 
you can use it in a book. You just don't always know when. Yeah, and and I think it brings a real authenticity to to the stories that we write. And uh, I know one time I I heard from an, a, de- a detective, and he said he'd been a detective for 17 years, and he said, when I read your books, I feel like I'm at a crime scene again. And I feel like that was one of the greatest compliments I've ever had for my writing. And I've never been to a crime scene, but to try and but I've investigated for many many hours and interviewed people, and just as you have, and. So, but it brings sort of this authenticity to it that I think that's really what attracts readers to our work. Oh, I I agree. I mean, because if you're going to be writing crime thrillers, you need to at least be accurate in the basic details. I mean, I know it's fiction, and I know that you're not going to get DNA in 24 hours, and I know you're not going to, you know, not every crime is going to be solved. But in our books, they are solved. Exactly. Otherwise, why would people read them? And they probably get solved a little faster than they would be. My mom pointed out to me, she reads all my books, and she pointed out you, that I kill off all my bad guys. And I said, no, I don't. And then I had to go think, and I said, oh, gosh, maybe I do. I think there's really been a couple that have gone to prison, one of whom ended up escaping and then was killed. Um, so I guess it's one of those things that I guess, you know, I don't know, probably some psychologist could do some great analysis of things. I think you just want to see justice carried out that's good yeah um so let me talk for a minute let's talk for a minute about story shaping um on the show we have had some guests who are proponents of outlining and others such as myself who write more organically what's your approach in developing your stories i'm totally an organic writer i do not plot i don't like plotting i won't plot i don't even write synopses my agent got kind of tried to get me to do it for about two years, and it just like, no. Um, I, I can do like maybe one page summary of kind of the overall vision for the book, but it's never going to, even though one page isn't going to be accurate. Uh, I think you are, my, you are my storytelling soul sister, I think. <laughs> I'm the exact same way. I think that the key for me when I'm coming into now. It is a little different, I will say. With my series, because I already know my series character, when you're mm-hmm. creating a brand new character, you do have to. I do spend a little bit of time just thinking about it, and usually, one character will come to me fully formed. So either the villain or the hero, somebody will come to me, and I go, I know who you are. I can start writing. I may not know. I usually have like the inciting incident. What is the mystery going to be about? And then I could just start writing it. Um, with a series, you already know your character. So the whole I spend a, probably a little more time thinking about the plot because yeah. I'm thinking, okay, well, what can I do to my character who I already know that it's going to really shake her up? Yeah. For example, my last book, The Lost Girls, Lucy can't have any children. She's sterile. It's something, she was attacked when she was 18, so she can't have kids. And this was a story about black market babies. And I just hmm. knew that this was going to have a huge emotional impact on her um, because she here she is, she's engaged, she's about to get married, This is her sister just had a baby, and she can't have one. And she never thought she wanted one because when you're 18, you never really think about, oh, yes, I'm going to want, you know. Someday, but yeah. now that she's older and she's been thinking that, and she can't have something, it, it's, it's just a huge emotional story for her and a big emotional story arc. Um, 
so you always try to give your characters. You don't want to do that every single book because it'll just be overwhelming. Because poor Lucy then would be, you know, <laughs> she'd be a total basket case, and everybody would wonder why aren't you like in a psychiatric ward? Because <laughs> things happen to you. So usually I'll have um, uh, there'll be like a couple books where she's just essentially the investigator, and yes, it impacts her, but it's not going to be an over um, personal story so much as like the right. last one was more of a personal story for her because she had to deal with a lot of this um, these emotions that she wasn't used to dealing with. Um, so with series characters, you have to make sure that you're always letting them grow. And by letting them grow, you have to give them things that are going to challenge them, that are going to be, take them out of their comfort zone, um, and then see what happens. And that's the fun part is seeing what happens. Why do I want to know? If I know who the killer is, why am I going to write the book? It's not fun. <laughs> I know it's fun because I hear you saying these things, and that's what I've said to people, and they just shake their heads and say, how? And a lot of times when people who are plotters, and, and I have nothing against, I've interviewed some just excellent writers who, who plot out their books, but, but a lot of times they'll say things like, well, what if you write yourself into a corner, or what if you write a scene that you can't end up using? How do you respond to people when they say things like that? Well... Um, the, the whole thing with writing is writing is rewriting, and I firmly believe that. Nothing yeah. I write is going to stay. When I type the end, I'm going to go back and basically rewrite that whole book anyway. Um, and I know when I get to the end that I'm gonna have, I might have to like cut out an entire chapter or several yeah. things that no longer work. That's okay. That's, to me, that's part of the discovery process. Um, in terms of writing myself into a corner, I might have done it a couple of times. It's not where it's ir- usually I my thirty make them pay is my thirtieth book. So usually by the time I get to a point in the book, I know if it's going off in the wrong direction. So I'll backtrack a little bit and kind of fig- figure out where I went off the rails if something isn't quite working. Yeah, and I'll just backtrack maybe a couple chapters, and so I might have to delete thirty or forty pages. But to me, that's no big deal because the second book I ever wrote, my editor said to me, "So I sold when I first sold, I sold a three book deal. So the first book was done and complete, and I basically only had to do light revisions and then rewrite the ending because it was kind of a mess. Um, So like the last hundred pages got rewritten, but it was still the same story." Right. Uh, by the second book, I had the second book done. I turned it in, and she basically said, I love your prologue and the first chapter, but I think <laughs> you wrote all the scenes that didn't need to be written, and you left out all the good stuff. Wow. And this was a 400-page book, and she gave <laughs> like 30 pages. And, here, and I really thought, I said, my career is over. My career is completely yeah. over. Obviously, that first book was a total fluke, and I'm never going to be able to write another good book. I sat down, and I read all of her. She gave me great notes, like about why she felt this way. Yeah. And I said, she's totally right. This is a totally boring book. I rewrote that entire book, basically 300 pages in wow. eight days. So the in how many? Was 18. I wrote, rewrote the whole book in 18 days. <laughs> 18 days? Because... I um, one they pay me when they accept the book, so I was really motivated to get that check. And right. secondly, because I was scared to death, my career was going to be over because the book was she wasn't happy with the book. 
Yeah. But when I realized exactly what I had done, it, the story was all there. I just had to write the scenes that I left out. And I turned it in, and she called me up three days later, and she said, I love this book. I wow. didn't think you were going to be able to do it, but you did. And ever since then, I realized that everything is fixable. As long as the story is there, I can yeah. do anything. Well, on the one hand, that's encouraging. On the other, I sit here and say, 18 days, <laughs> I would never be able to pull that off. But well, I think, I, I think that's fantastic. Me, I think she gave me three or four weeks. I can't remember. This was back in 2000. Sure. No, I hear you. That's great. But, um, um, yeah, one of the so things I wanted to ask you about a little what, – what was that? Oh, nothing. Go on. Oh, I was just going to ask you a little bit about romance. Uh, you know, people talk about romantic suspense. And – I was at a writer's conference, and I said, you know, that genres are very um, elusive and hard to pin down. And there was an agent sitting next to me, and she said, no, no, they're not. And I was like, well, what about romantic suspense? And she's like, yeah, the genre of romantic suspense. I said, well, it doesn't exist in film. She said, what are you talking about? I said, there's never been a film that's been advertised as romantic suspense. Now, they'll have suspense and thrillers and romance and drama and comedy, but... They don't have a romantic suspense as a genre for film. Now, I'm not saying that you don't have stories that we would call romantic suspense as authors or novelists, but that they don't. And she sat there and she goes, I am so trying to come up with a way to disprove you. But no, you're absolutely right. Like, yeah, and, and so, right. yeah, so in, in writing, though, in, in, in novels, we have this sort of romantic suspense. How, where do you see that, or how do you see that as as fleshed out when you when you write in that whatever we want to call that whatever that genre is. Well, um the Lucy series started as romantic suspense. I'm just gonna sort of backtrack a little bit and give it a little history. It started as romantic suspense and the whole reason was because in romantic suspense you have to have a romance that is emotionally satisfying by the end of the book, meaning your characters have to survive and yeah. they have to be together, or at least take a step together in their relationship. Sure. So when you're dealing with a long-running series, you can gradually have them together, or you could have them together by the end of the book, but they can't die. <laughs> you know, you can't kill off <laughs> one of them. That's a love story. Um, you have, they have to both be alive. They have to, it has to be emotionally satisfying. The reader has to at least be optimistic that they are going to have a future together. That's the romance part of it. But you also have to have a suspense. And it is actually a debate among among romance writers as to what constitutes a romantic suspense. How much romance do you have to have? Mm, I'm yeah. of the mind that you, as long as you have that emotionally satisfying ending where your characters are going to be together, the romance can be secondary to the story. Think Die Hard. To me, that right. is the perfect romantic suspense. Okay? John McClane is separated from his wife. He goes to Los Angeles from New York for Christmas, try, wanting to reconcile with his wife but not understanding why she's taken her maiden name for this job, why she's moved to Los Angeles. He's still, because he's a beat cop, he doesn't quite understand why she's doing this. Um, and, then, and then, of course, terrorists attack the building. And he has to not only save the building, but he has to save his wife, the mother of his children. I mean, to me, that is the perfect romantic suspense, and they are together at the end of the movie. And um, so to me, that's kind of how I view it. 
there are some that say you have to have more romance or some that say it doesn't matter. I'm one of the says it doesn't matter as long as you have the emotionally satisfying story. My first 12 books I classify as romantic suspense because I developed a relationship between two characters over the course of the story. Um, they Sometimes they worked together, sometimes they worked parallel, but by the end of the book, the reader knew that they were going to have a happily ever after. didn't always end in marriage. They didn't, they didn't always move in together, but at least they were together. Um, in my Lucy series, I wanted to show kind of the evolution of her relationship with Sean because Lucy has a big backstory. So they are together, and they were together at the end of the first book, but it's been a longer process They, you know, before they end up moving in together and before they end up moving to San Antonio together and all the things that they have to deal with between each other and also, Sean has a past, too. He used to be a hacker, a hacktivist. And so he has some things in his background that doesn't, isn't really conducive to marrying an FBI agent. Right. So I, have to, I get to deal with all these fun stuff at, over the course of this series so that they can have their happily ever after. Um, now, I think it's a real skill to build romance, romantic tension, I'll say. I'll put it that way. Um, it's a real gift and a skill to be able to ratchet that up so that readers yearn for those two characters to be together. Um, as you build that tension, you know, because romance is not just about getting two people together, because why can't they just get together? It's about actually keeping them apart in a believable way. Because otherwise they fall in love, why don't they just get married or whatever, leave their spouse or whatever they want to do? But there have to be those forces that don't allow them to do it. How do you do that with with your with your characters when readers want them to get together and but yet you find ways to create that tension where they can't well it has to be organic to the characters i can't give you a one answer um in speak no evil which was the book about the cyber stalker who found the anonymous blog um the heroine was a detective in San Diego. She was an army brat. The most important thing to her was having a home base. So when her dad settled in San Diego, that was her home. And she is so really, really close to her family. The hero was a sheriff from Montana who came down to San Diego, sort of a fish-out-of-water story, because his brother was suspected of murder. And uh-huh. so he came down because he didn't believe his brother had done this. His brother's a war hero. There's no way. Well, they meet. And over the course of this investigation, they fall in love. He's the elected sheriff of Gallatin County in Montana. She loves her family and home. How are they going to be together? There you go. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a very organic story to those two characters. I can't do that in every book. Right. Um, so, yes, I do, I do address it, and I, they do end up, getting together because he just doesn't seek re-election. But they're apart for a while, I mean, and, I, and it kind of has an epilogue feeling to it. Um, other books, I had one where the heroine was a deputy district attorney, and she used a cop turned in his partner, but he was supposed to do it anonymously, but she couldn't build the case, so she basically outed him on the stand, and he had to testify under oath about what his partner was doing, and then he was blacklisted by the department and had to leave. And that was their history. So when five years later, when her niece is accused of murder, she hires him, he's now a private investigator. Well, he wants nothing to do with her because he blames her for what happened to him and losing his job. Um, And even though he was the right thing to do, it still tore him up. So they have to get over all of that past in order to 
um, be able to have a future together. Yeah. In the midst of solving getting her niece off the hook for castrating her stepfather. <laughs> <laughs> so I do have, I could have fun stories. Um, and, you know, so everything <laughs> has to be organic to the characters. Otherwise, it's just, I mean, one of the things I will say, male thriller writers, no offense, they can get away with a lot more than female thriller writers, I think, <laughs> in terms of their characters. They can, if they have a male character as their main character, he can sleep with a different woman in every book. Female protection. It happens. <laughs> it, it happens. Happen. Well, it's the male fantasy. You know, being able to, you have a book, you have basically the woman of the month or the woman of the year or whatever. You know, it's kind yeah. of a male fantasy where they get to have a new, you know, James Bond. I rest my case. <laughs> Female protagonists don't have that luxury. Female protagonists, if they sleep around from book to book, they are. it's a double standard. It's a total double standard, but... You really can't do it. My mom told me, so my Maxine Revere series is not a romantic suspense. She has two love interests, her ex-boyfriend and then her current boyfriend. And it's really her journey. It's her story. The Her relationships are, you know, tertiary. They're not even secondary to the storyline. Um, my mom said she has to make up her mind by book five. <laughs> I'm like, mom, she goes, it's fine. It's fine if you go back and forth or if she's having this, you know, indecisive thing, but she has to make up her mind by book five. And I'm like saying, how can you arbitrarily say she has to make up her mind by book five? <laughs> <laughs> she says, I'm just telling you. I'm like, oh, my gosh. So this is my mom. Um, but I do think that there is a bit of a double standard. I think they will give a female protagonist the option between going back and forth, Stephanie Plum, Ranger, and Joe. You, you can do that. If you let her go on too long or if you give her too many relationships, people don't respect her as much. And I don't think it's fair, but it just is what it is. So with Max, I kind of am cognizant of that. And so hers are really more straight-up mystery series. And so her relationships are secondary because I don't want to have to deal with – if it doesn't work out, I don't want my readers to be upset with me. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, that's it. We're here to serve the readers, you know, and and um, to set up the expectations, to deliver whatever it is through, uh, you know, the way that the story is told or who we are, our background, the book, the packaging, everything, so that we give them what they want or something better. And um, and I think, yeah, it's easy to to try to, from an outside, someone say, okay, this this is going to be this genre and you write it. But let's say that the story begins to take on a different bent, like, you know, you said you write organically and you might have in mind to do it more romantic suspense, but decide that because of all those parameters, it doesn't fit so neatly into that category. I think being able to adapt is fantastic. Well, and I think my readers, I know why they read me. I can't, for example, I can't split Sean and Lucy up. My readers would be upset. We're going on their 12th book. So if I broke them up, my readers would be furious. More likely if one of I killed one of them because they have very dangerous jobs, my readers would be furious with me. So that's not going to happen. And it's the only thing I've promised my readers. I say everybody in the series is expendable except for Sean and Lucy. (laughs) It's the story promise of the series. With Max, I've never made that story promise. She may or may not stay together with Nick. She it it it's just dependent on 
what happens to her as as she goes through these stories that I, that I'm in what she's learning and how she's growing as a as a investigative reporter. So that that's the difference. It's all based on the story promise. But what I know my readers read me for the suspense. That's the primary reason they read me, and they read me for my characters. I think they do like my characters, even if I'm not going to be writing a romantic suspense. Yeah, it's a story that has smarts but also heart. You know, it's not just action suspense, but it has. I think that um, building those relationships is is fantastic. And uh, it's, I was thinking of. One of my books, RT Book Reviews, gave it a good review, and uh, RT stands, you probably know, Romantic Times. It used to be called Romantic Times. And my friend could not stop giving me a hard time about how I wrote romance. I said, no, it's RT Book Reviews. He's like, yeah, yeah, it's Romantic Times. You're a romance writer. He just wouldn't let up. (laughs) Well, you know, people have a preconceived notion about what romance is, and um, I was a member of Romance Writers for 14 years. Yeah. Romance is a broad genre, and people say, oh, it's just Fifty Shades of Grey. Well, no. To me, that's not romance, but that's a whole other story. Right. Um, it's A romance is a really – it's a love story, and people like romances because it, they're hopeful for the future. I mean, if I you like don't it. have yeah, two people good. that fall in love and get married, we have no future. We're not going to have – you know, we have, we'll have no family unit. We'll have no offspring. You know, it's – people love a good romance, and it also – Good romances will show what basically he- everyday heroes, people that do make sacrifices for somebody else, whether it's their spouse or their child. I think as I've grown as a writer, one of the things I really want to start exploring, and I have a little bit in my books because Lucy has a big family, is I really want to start exploring the parent-child relationship a lot more, yeah. siblings, um, grandparents. I, I like the whole dynamic of a family, even if, or family by blood or by marriage or by um, just friendship. I yeah. like to have that kind of dynamic. Nice. Yeah. So I, I think that's as I've, I've seen myself growing as a, as a writer. And I, don't, I hate to use the word growing because I don't think it's so much that I'm getting, I think I'm getting better just because I've been writing more books, but it's just wanting to explore different themes. Um, as a mother, well, one of my greatest fears, it, people always say you have to write your greatest fear, and I, someday I'm going to do this. I'm not ready to do it now. But when I had my second child, I used to have to drive over this bridge to go visit my mom, and it wasn't a very long bridge. It was just very high. I used to have this recurring nightmare that my car went off that bridge and I had to make a choice, which child to save. Cause I had a oh, my goodness. And, there you go. Wow. And they were both in car seats. And it's like, which child do you say? Why? Well, I, I would go back and forth in my mind. Well, if the infant is can't swim at all, so I mean, you'd have to grab the infant. But then my two-year-old, who could barely swim, and this is big current, she would know that I was leaving her. So because she was two, and I mean, I would wake up in a sweat because I couldn't make a decision. And it was the hard. I mean, it's hard. And so I, that's going to come up in a book someday. I have. I don't someday. know how. I don't know when, but. They always say you write to your greatest fear, um, and that's. I think that would be hard. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, but there's a deep emotional resonance in that dilemma that you know readers would not be able to put it down. But but man, that would but be hard. But I don't know if I want. I don't know if I'd want to read that book <laughs> right. as a mother. I'm like, I, mean, I don't know if I'd want to read it. <laughs> yeah, one of my books starts with a mom who drives off a pier with her two sons in the back seat. 
uh, in her minivan. I heard twin, twin five-year-olds, and and then the main character. It starts where it's the husband and the dad. He's there and he's watching them bring up the bodies, and uh, he finds out his wife did it on purpose. You know how every year or two you'll hear about some mom who does this. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, and so that's what happens with with that story, and it started. And as a dad myself, I have th- you know I have three daughters, and so that was a horrifying scene to write, but but um, but it's 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 a, one of the most powerful scenes I've ever had in my books because it has that like what you were just saying with family. Family is so there's so much love. Like it doesn't need to be a maybe a romantic love, but a deep love story can be parent and child. Friendship, as you said, and those are the stories that will really, really draw people in. I think. No, I I, I agree because it all goes back to character, as we said at the very beginning. It's yeah, all about character. Yeah. So tell me about your new book, Make Them Pay. I'm really interested in either what drove you to write this book or what the primary dilemma of this new book is. Well, Make Them Pay is the twelfth book of the Lucy Kincaid series. So it was, um, I've been writing toward this book for quite a while. It's supposed to be the big payoff. Um, I could have ended the series with this, but I actually am going to write two more Lucy books. So basically, um, all throughout the series, Sean, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to say it so I don't get to be confusing. Basically, <laughs> Sean's family is kind of um, kind of split apart. His parents died when he was 14, and he was raised by one of his brothers. He has a brother and sister that went to Europe for college, and they were already there when his parents died, and they never came home. They had worked for the family business, was this um, protection company. They basically did cyber protection, personal protection, and it was started by his two older brothers. The brother and sister that were in Europe, had, Liam and Eden, had worked for them, and then all of a sudden were cut off six years ago. And Sean didn't really know why, because at that time he had just finished college. He was just starting working for the family business, and he just trusted his brothers. Well, you fast forward six years, and now all that story is coming to a head with this. Liam finds out that he, he knew he had been cut off from the family, but he finds out that his oldest brother, Kane, had... Um, stolen bearer bonds out from under him. And he didn't know it, but in the bonds is a treasure map. So uh-huh. he wants the treasure map. So it kind of is a – there's been little clues about this throughout the series, but I never really knew what was going to happen. I didn't know why Liam wanted these damn bonds until – honestly, I didn't know until I was 100 pages into the book. Oh, my gosh, there's a treasure map etched. I love it. I love it. That's great. In special ink on one of these bonds. And that's why he wants it. Because I was trying to think, okay, why is he going to do all of these things against his family? Because it's a treasure map. I had read this article way back when about how there was a rumor that there was gold and silver being um, sent to the Alamo. Because this series takes place in San Antonio. So it was being sent Uh to the Alamo from Mexico and either through Spain or another country and, but it never got there in time. So there's like a uh, lost right. treasure. And everybody speculates, oh, it actually is buried at the Alamo. No, it got stolen by bandits or it's buried in a graveyard or whatever. So I kind of said, okay, let's say there really was this treasure. What could have happened to it? So I made up this whole fictional 
reason why that treasure got lost. And that is what's etched in these bonds. It was basically friends of the Rogan family had a journal from one of their ancestors that talked about it, about the, this treasure and how they got attacked. And he was one of two survivors, and he wrote the story. Um, so they've been searching for this treasure for basically their entire life. And when they found out that Cain had actually stolen the bonds, they turned on their family. So that was kind of one of those the fun things that I get to resolve what happened to Liam and Eden for my readers because they said, hey, are you ever going to write a story about Liam and Eden? I want to know what happened to them and da-da-da-da-da. And I keep telling people they're not good people. Don't expect them <laughs> for those people because I know they're kind of sketchy. I didn't know if I'd be able to redeem them. I didn't know if I'd be if they were really going to be bad. I didn't know what they were going to do um, other than he wanted these bonds to find this treasure. And that's kind of how I came up with the story idea. But it's all coming down at the time 12 days before Sean and Lucy are supposed to get married. So, <laughs> so nice, they're coming though. into the lives right at the most pivotal time. And the other thing is Lucy's also resolving what happened in the previous book, the Black Market Baby book. Um, she has a, a journal that basically lists all the babies that were born, and she is trying to help locate them all over the country. So, you know, that's kind of going on a, a little bit, but then – here we have this big um, situation with Liam and Eden coming in right before the wedding. And, yeah, it was fun. It was, it was actually a, it was a little bit different for me in the sense yeah. that I could do a treasure hunt. And I got to do a little a lot of historical research, which I usually don't do. Um, but yeah. it, it was different. But in that way, it kind of, kind of keeps it fresh because I've never done anything like this before. Yeah, people would say, oh, it's high concept. And you're just like, no, it's just... This is where the story led me, you know, and I love how you had all these promises kind of throughout the previous books where readers are like, well, what's going to happen with this? And while you're writing, you're like, I have no idea. And then you build this story, you're like, well, here, here's all of the payoff for all of those story threads. So that's great. Because my next um, book that comes out in August, it's a Maxine Revere book, um, but I brought Lucy into it. So Max investigates cold cases and for years going back to my no evil trilogy which was my fourth fifth and sixth books that i wrote people want to know what happened to justin who is the um basically the nephew lucy's nephew they were the same age because her oldest sister gave birth the same time her mom gave birth so they were best friends he was murdered when he was seven and his murder is actually what prompted most of the Kincaid family to go into law enforcement. Because I've written about all of Lucy's brothers and sisters. They've all gotten their own stories. Um, and But they all changed. When somebody in your family gets murdered, it affects you on a fundamental level. And that's right. what his murder did. It affected Lucy differently because she was so young at the time. And um, that's why Karina became a cop. It's why... Um, Patrick became a cop. It's why Dylan became a forensic psychiatrist. So I got to do all these these fun things. I never intended to solve his murder. I had no idea. There was only three facts that I knew because I'd said them in a previous book. One, he was kidnapped from his bedroom. He was killed almost immediately and buried in a shallow grave, and he was not sexually assaulted. Those are the three facts of the crime that I had revealed in previous books. Yeah. No suspect, nothing. And I never planned on solving it because I had no idea who had done it or why. Well, Max investigates cold cases. 
And all of a sudden, it, the idea just, I realized what happened to him. And I'm like going, oh, my gosh, I could actually have a crossover book. And that's <laughs> called Justin's Murder. And so it just, it, it clicked. And I still didn't know why, but I kind of had a sense. So I was so excited when I, it just popped into my head. And I'm like thinking, did I know this all along? No, because I didn't even know Max, you know, 10 years ago when I wrote yeah. the book. Um, so I get to bring them both into Shattered. And um, that was really fun, too. One of the things that strikes me, it's just really fun listening to you. It's like as you talk about your characters, you know them so well, and they're almost like old friends, and you refer to them just as people and relationships that are real. And uh, that's just that's really neat, and it's refreshing. It's not just like you're there throwing down words and characters onto a page, but you care about them, and you've spent years with them, and, and it's clear when you talk about them. I don't know if that makes me a little crazy. But <laughs> well... It's probably the best kind of crazy a writer can okay. be. So. Okay, I'll take that then. <laughs> well, if our readers aren't familiar with your novels, we want them to order Make Them Pay, or uh, would you say there's another novel that would be great to start with? Um, the Max, first of all, the Maxi Revere books, even though it's a series, they all kind of stand alone. Um, but the first book is Notorious. And the first Lucy book is Love Me to Death. I've, I really, really try hard that even when it's a continuing series, I try to have it where it's um, each book can sort of stand alone. Sure. But with Lucy, there's probably a couple places that's easier to start with, and one of them would be like the first San Antonio book was Dead Heat. It was the eighth book in the series, but she had been in Washington D.C. for seven books. Um, although they moved, they did different things around the East Coast, and then she was assigned to San Antonio. So I kind of wanted to boot, you know, jumpstart the series. Yeah, it. reboot it. Or start so it. that readers, if they came in at the eighth book, yes, there's a lot of stuff that happened in the past that they can read about, but it's also in a way a new fresh start because she's a rookie FBI agent, new characters. The only character that comes really stays from the previous books is Sean because he moves with her. Um, so that I wanted to give readers another place to start. They could also start with The Lost Girls, which is the last book, uh, because that kind of um, is the emotional weight of their relationship. Basically, everything emotional culminates in that book. Um, but I think you could start anywhere. It just depends. Yeah. Every reader is different. And some readers say, no, I have to start at the beginning. So the beginning I know. People will say that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, okay. Well. Me to death. But I think you could start anywhere. I even think you could start with Make Them Pay. The only problem is, is because there are characters that recur throughout the series, you don't always get their full backstory. Right. Unless you read the book that they're introduced in. But you get, an, yeah. I think you get enough so you kind of know who they are. No, that sounds great. And uh, it's it's been good listening uh, to, to your thoughts, and it's neat to connect with another person who writes more organically because – I can hear, you know, when you say, oh, I had no idea where this was going to go, and I was so excited. That excitement, to me, is really what writing is all about. And if some people can climb into that and writing an outline, more power to them. But but uh, I feel the same way as I'm writing, and, uh, and it's great to hear that excitement uh, of discovery because it really I think that's what, what lies at the core of really enjoying what we do here. Great. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. 
fun. Well, everybody, thanks for listening, and um, thanks for, Allison, thanks for being our guest today. For info about our writing retreats that I lead, please check out NovelWritingIntensive.com, and Every Deadly Kiss is now available for pre-order. You can order that anywhere online. And follow my books and public appearances. Read Stephen James is my Twitter handle. Um, Allison, what's the best place online to stay connected with you or to maybe follow if you're going to be doing a book tour? Um, my website, allisonbrennan.com, um, and I'm also very active on my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash allisonbrennan. Ah, excellent. And so everybody listening, if uh, you want to listen to another broadcast or find out about our other guests, click to thestoryblender.com. And folks, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.